0: we're in Matthew chapter 12, 33 through 42. Time for a heart check. Now, you know where we've been. We've been in uh, where Jesus has told the nation of Israel that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They ascribed to Him, healing a blind, deaf, mute to the power of Satan. That was the last straw for the nation of Israel. They They rejected Messiah. That was their last time. That's judicial hardening there be no more chances for the nation of Israel. And so this week, I want you to check out your heart. Where is your heart? So please stand as we read the Word of God together. Matthew 12, 33 through 42. Either make the tree good and its fruit bad, or else make the tree bad and its fruit... Uh, tree... Oh, let's try that again in the King's English. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? As a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his uh, brings forth bad things, evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may say, or men may speak, I'm having a terrible time here, aren't I? I Just bear with me. We'll make it. But I say to you that every idle word that man may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed greater than Solomon is here. This is the Word of God. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for each person that has carved out time out of their lives to meet here today to study the Word of the living God. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill this place. I ask that you would touch each heart. I ask ask that you would soften each heart. And I ask that you would speak through me to your people things that you would like them to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. And I forgot to say this is the Word of God. (laughs) Let's do that again, okay? Let's not get out of sync here. I'm out of sync. You don't have to be out of sync. This is the Word of God. God. Okay, thank you. All these people are looking at me, going, "What are you doing, Rick?" I'm a little numb, okay? I got tons of cold medicine in me, so. But anyway, the theme is Jesus is the promised King, and again, we've been talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This was a confirmed judicial hardening of the Jewish people. The consequences for their final rejection would be borne out. And it was borne out in 70 A.D. when Rome conquered Jerusalem. And what happened in 70 A.D. at at the Passover, the Roman general Vespasian came into Rome or came into Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and that whole thing. He got called back to Rome because there was trouble there. He ended up becoming the, the emperor of Rome. Titus, his son, took over. Then Titus finished the thing that Vespasian, his father, started. There were, it was a Passover. There was over one million people in, Jer- in Jerusalem at that time. And what happened is that the siege started. It's, it lasted eight months. And what the Romans did is they built a wall around the city. And in building a wall around the city, they isolated the community within those walls, and there was no food, there was no water, there was cannibalism that actually started, and it ended up being a terrible thing for the, for the people. And, and Josephus says 1.1 million people died in that siege, all because they didn't know the time of their visitation. Now, Josephus, it's interesting, he's the historian, but Josephus was one of them that was leading the rebellion against Rome. And then he decided to become a traitor and go over to Rome and wanted to negotiate a peace between Rome and the, and the Jewish zealots, but neither side would believe him. And so he ends up just writing history and, and not actually accomplishing anything in that hostility. Now, I have an artist's rendition here of the carnage of Jerusalem. You just Google something like this, and it's just all these bodies and all these people and all this mess that's going on in, in, uh, in, with this siege. And you have to remember that the Roman soldiers were very, very distressed. They had suffered enormous casualties, and they were angry and hostile. And when they went in and finally made the defeat, they tore everything in there apart. Every stone was uncovered. In the Temple Mount, there's a millstone that has been discovered. And the reason I'm putting this up here is that archaeological discoveries prove the validity of the Bible. It has Vespasian. It has Titus written on it. So there's a millstone here that has their names. Also on this millstone is a guy that led the revolt. His name is, the Roman Roman procreator of Judea was Flavia Silva. He led the 10th legion that assaulted Jerusalem. That same legion also assaulted Masada. Now that city was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was torn down. But there was 1,000 zealots that escaped to Masada. And I have a picture here of Masada. Now, this is a defense position. This was built by Herod. This had years of supply of food. It had, even at this height, it had an underground water system that they had unlimited water. Now, what happened is the Roman armies would come and they could see them from a great distance, the clouds of smoke. And the assault lasted three years on Masada. Three years. The Jews held off the Roman army. No one had done this before, holding them off like this, because their position was so defendable. Now, what the Romans did is they conscripted Jewish slaves, and they made them build an aqueduct, or or, or a causeway, a road up the mountain. Heretofore, they used Romans to do that, and the Romans were just getting pelted with these great big boulders. They couldn't accomplish it, but the Jewish zealots on the mountaintop would not kill their own people. And so the time finally came for Rome to walk up that causeway and, and assault the mountaintop. And what they found stunned them. There was a thousand zealots that had killed themselves, had committed suicide, because they would not be slaves of Rome. And today what you have is the Israeli Defense Force. When their young men and women get constricted into, into, into the military, They go to Masada, and they are told this story, and they all say this in an oath. Masada will not fall again. We will fight to the death. Now, that's the posture of the Jewish army today. We will not give in. Now, the temple was originally not supposed to be destroyed. It was a beautiful, ornate structure. And Titus wanted to save it for his father Vespasian and the Roman pantheon of gods. But God would not have that because Jesus predicted that that temple would be totally destroyed, not one stone upon another. I have a little architectural thing of of Herod's temple. And when you go to Jerusalem, you walk around this thing, and this is a depiction of the temple. And it was one of the most beautiful of all creations. Rome had nothing like this and all the great architecture of Rome. So Titus wanted to save this, to have his gods worshiped here, and Vespasian worshiped here, because remember, they were into emperor worship in Rome. Now Jesus said, no, 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 these walls are going to be torn down. So now you have a, the next picture of these rocks. Now these are huge stones, and another similar one here. Just to give you an idea of the size of the stones and the anger that the Roman soldiers must have had. They have the energy and the strength to just tear down this whole thing. Jesus predicted this would happen. In Romans 20, excuse me, Matthew 24, 1 and 2, it says this. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus predicted this, and in 70 A.D. this happened. Now, why did it happen? Jesus gives us a tip-off as to why it happened in Luke chapter 19, 41 through 44. The reason for their destruction is they rejected Messiah. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They crowned him as king. This is Palm Sunday. And a few days later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. And that's exactly what they did. They built a wall around it, just like Jesus predicted. Around you, surround you, enclose you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time that Messiah was coming to you. You rejected him, and you rejected him. All that's left of this great architecture that Herod took years and years and years to build is a little fragment of the western wall. And I have a picture here of just the part of the western wall that the Jewish people, this is the outside wall. This isn't the temple. This is the wall to Jerusalem. This is all that's left is this. The whole temple area was destroyed. That's what the Jews hold sacred today. All because they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It was the final rejection for the Jewish people. Now hear this. People who reject the Holy Spirit's conviction in their life ultimately will face destruction. As it is with a nation, as it is with a temple, as it is with a city, so it is with a person who ultimately rejects. And Hebrews 3.15 says this today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. What you must understand is that every person has to deal with who Jesus is. Remember Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowd. The same one that was extolling him on Palm Sunday was screaming crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus and Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and he asks this question, "What will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ?" And that question, folks, is posed to every single human on this planet. What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Now this week we're going to be talking about time for a heart check. and We pick up our study in verse 33 through 35. A good tree, a bad tree, it's all about your heart. Every one of these topics is going to be about your heart. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit fruit it's very important and then Jesus says these nice calm words to these Pharisees brood of vipers <laughs> how can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks a good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things jesus used similar words i don't know if you remember this in Matthew chapter 7 verse 17 when he's dealing with the false teachers and he says they're going to you will know them by their fruits the false teachers what they're producing what their character really is. So the question I have for you is what is fruit? What is fruit? Fruit is emblematic or symbolic of a person's character, what your life produces. What is the world seeing being produced in you? Now, I would suggest to you, hopefully, they see in the Christian godly character. So what is godly character? It's defined this way. Godly character is consistently doing the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reason. Now, look it. Who can do that? No, Nobody. I mean, we're on, a, we're on a journey of change, okay? All consistent with the Word of God, not with what the person thinks. Your character is not what you think it should be, is what God determines it should be from His word, how we should look. How is Godly character produced? How is good fruit produced? Well, it is produced this way. You cannot have a fruitful, godly, character-filled life unless you are dwelling in Christ. Remember the word, men know. dwelling, making your home in Christ. It will not happen. In John 15, 5, Jesus said these words, I am the vine and you are the branches. The source is Jesus Christ of your power. If a man remains in me and I remain in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot produce fruit by trying really hard, straining really hard, being really good. The only way to do it is dwelling in Christ, making your home in Christ. And folks, that takes time. You have to carve time out of your life, and I would suggest every day, with Jesus. That'll make a difference in your character. There are no shortcuts. Nothing will replace this. There are no self-help groups that will help you with this. No motivational speaks, words of affirmation, horoscopes. How about Eastern meditation? People go to that all the time. New Age mysticism. Then, of course, people turn to drugs and addictions and All the flesh stuff, folks, that will not help your life. That will not change your character. That will not make things better for you. No phony cliches. Now, no phony cliches. Here's a phony cliche. Have you heard this? Live out your truth. Anybody heard that? I mean, is that a common thing? Live out your truth. Yes, Mr. Gorham. Yes, okay. I'll say it for you. Yes, yes, that is... So, what is truth? That which is real, not imagined, not made up by the individual. See, people make up their own truth. There is a great danger there. Now, who determines truth? And I would suggest to you, God determines truth. God tells his creation what is true. Not his creation telling God what is true. See, we got it mixed up in our world here today. We often hear, follow my heart. Follow my truth. Follow world think. Follow flesh pleasing. Remember, all of this follow your heart is giving you license to do whatever you want to do. Follow your heart. Now, what if you're a murderer? You don't want that dude to follow his heart or dude or a rapist, or a thief, or an adulterer, or anything. You don't want it. No, no, no. You don't want that. Remember, people are tuning in like mad to phony truth today. Phony truth. Recognize this. It's happening in our world. Folks, our family is being inundated with phony truth. Our friends, churches, workplaces, schools, government, media, all of us are getting phony truth pumped into us 24-7. Your protection from this onslaught is one way. It is time with Jesus, time in his word. Thy word is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Everything that is of truth must bear witness with those three things. Otherwise, we discard it. We discard it. So the point here is, We are being bombarded. So we are affected by this. And the goal is to change your thinking. Now, we want to have our thinking anchored in God and His Word. It's the only way you can overcome this. So the only way to change character, it'll come up on the screen, and combat world think or phony truth is to change your thinking. Now, how do you change your thinking? How do you change your thinking? Well, that's a process. Remember, you're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's sanctification. Remember, the instant you were saved, you were justified, declared righteous. Jesus' righteousness was imputed to you, credited to you. The instant you said, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. But that isn't where the the rubber really meant the road. That was something God did for you. But your life change is sanctification. That's phase two, free from the power of sin. And that is what's being conformed to the likeness of Christ is. And when we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ, something happens in the human. This is, this is irrevocably changed. Every human will be changed by this if you do this. There's a brain chemistry change. There's gyruses and sulcuses in your brain. Now, I have a picture here of a brain. All these little squiggles here are tracks or ways of thinking. And when you develop new ways of thinking, old strongholds start to diminish and new ways of righteous thinking, which I have here in the bright colors, starts to become more and more prominent. It will not happen if you do not spend time with Christ. You can go to all the psychologists you want. You can go to all the meetings that you want. You can do all the mysticism you want. You can get all the words of affirmation that you want. You have to spend time with Christ to change your brain for real. Now, the negative stuff can change your brain for sure. Eastern mysticism can do that. But it's not going to be for your good that just opens portals to the demonic realm you can become a new you in christ the moment you were born again you were born again to be changed not to stay the same but to be changed born again to be transformed and you know what that word is metamorphosis change from the inside out a new you a new you is emerging your, transfer, your transformation will be noticed, folks. If you really come into the family of God and you really start to work on becoming more like Jesus and being transformed by the renewing of your mind, your friends will notice this. And by the way, your friends don't like the new you. They'll want you to drop out, go back, go back to the old you. I, you were so cool before. Now you're not so cool. You're going to hear that over and over they will leave you in the dust. Time with Jesus is always productive. What will be the result? Godly character, fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, you guys, most of you know the verse, is love. Now, when you spend time with Jesus, this just starts to happen to you. You just don't work on being more loving. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, have crucified their sinful natures, have put to death the old you, and we walk in step with the Spirit of God. Folks, this being filled with the Spirit is not automatic. It does not happen unless you are abiding in Christ. It's not natural. It's not easy peasy. It is not. It takes work. It takes work, and really following Christ is wholly different than situational following. What do we mean by situational following? Well, I'll follow him if it goes along with what I think. But if it goes against what I think, eh, I think I'll go my own way. No, no. Jesus calls you to follow him fully. All areas are given over to him. Notice what he then says about evil character. He says, evil character cannot produce good fruit. Watch this, quote, brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? Now, doesn't that give you pause? Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not always speaking things that are so cheery and great and, great and wonderful. I don't know, but this is a tough verse. But know this, a person's words will expose their true character what they are beneath the surface. And I can tell you, this is scary. This is scary because sometimes my words are not so nice, and neither are yours. Verse 35, we read, A good heart produces good things, an evil heart will produce evil things. This is not good news. My tongue is a dead giveaway of my heart. And all I can say is, oh no, because my family sees something that you don't see. They see the real me, at least more of the real me. I can kind of hide the real me from even them. So, think about this. Now, take a breath. Remember, God is process-oriented. See, we're goal-oriented. We want to be there just like this. Get to the end right now. You're in a process of change. It takes time. It takes a lifetime. Romans 12, 2, you're going to hear this again in this talk at the closing. Do not, this is a, this is a, Imperative in the Greek, this is a command in the Greek do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be like this world, conform to this world. If you're conformed to this world, you're doing world think. Remember, we came up with that terminology. We don't want world think, we want God think. Not world think, going into what the masses are thinking and saying is okay, we want God think. God think. Now, in verse 36 and 37, there's more of this stuff on the tongue in our hearts. And this is scary stuff, too. 36 and 37. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak. Now, this, this, just take a think about this. We'll give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Just think just kind of soak that in for just a second. Now, what are idle words? Well, they're careless words spoken rashly, without thought, usually in the heat of the moment. Usually in the heat of the moment. Now, who hasn't done that? Nobody can raise their hand for that one. But I want you to suggest something to you. When you do that, when you you get into a spew fest where you just let it all go, I just got to be true to my heart, I just got to let it all go, know that something bad's going to come back at you. So take a pause, you don't have to spew. But listen to this, when you get into that spew fest, what part of your being is really taking over you? An immature spirit will spew with ease. Folks, none of us are all that mature. None of us are all that mature. Watch for this in yourself and others. It's a giveaway to an immature emotional spirit. And again, anyone can digress into this. We want to do that less and less because it always hurts. Whenever you spew and then you come back and you go through, I'm sorry, I wish I wouldn't. I can't tell you. I, I, it's like innumerable times this has happened in my life. I really wish I wouldn't have said that. I don't know what happened to me. I had an out-of-body experience. I mean, it was, all of a sudden, I find myself going, usually it's that know, and I'm going, gosh, who was that? Where did he come from? Stick him back in the jack-in-the-box. Boom, get that dude out of the way. That's Mr. Flesh. Any of us can, can regress to that. The Pharisees spoke careless words concerning, concerning Jesus, blasphemed him, and paid the consequences. Careless words. Every careless word will be known. Every careless word will be judged. And it seems to me that it would be wise of us to guard our tongue. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Now this is, this is a memory verse for me, okay? You may not need this. I need this. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my incline my heart to any evil thing scripture oftentimes mentions guard your tongue and remember you can you can guard your tongue more and more as you dwell in christ but you're never going to get it perfect there will always be little spew things that can pop out at the most unexpected times it's like all of a sudden this other head pops out of your shoulder and goes starts screaming How can I learn to guard my tongue? That's the question. And I would suggest this from somebody who spews. Do not reflexively answer. Take time to deal with your emotions prior to responding. The heat of the moment is not time to express your feelings. Okay? Fleshly you will want to strike like a viper. Now tell me if this doesn't look like you when you're striking. I mean, this is us right here. I want to get a bite out of you. <sighs> yeah. That is what spewing does. Striking like a viper. And by the way, you're trying to cause somebody else pain. In the end, you receive pain. It happens. It happens. Cain and Abel. First murder in the Bible. It goes, all the way, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. They they were supposed to bring a a, a specific sacrifice to God. God told them what to bring. Abel brought something from the blood sacrifice. Cain brought something from the field. God accepted Abel's. He didn't didn't accept Cain's. What happens is Cain is ticked off and wants to viper his brother. He wants to bite him and kill his brother. God addresses this. Watch what he says. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, let that resonate within you. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Now picture that snake as a viper, coiled up, ready to strike. It's at your door. Its desire is for you. And then he says to Cain, you must master it, Cain. The onus is on you, Cain. God must have put something in Cain to give him the ability to master that. You have something today that he didn't have. You, have, as a believer, have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in you to enable you not to strike like a viper. You do. I do. We we don't have to respond this way. Let me just give a little clarification here. If you're a type A... This is a big problem for you. If you're a type B, you're probably wondering what's the big deal about all this striking viper stuff. But if you're a type A and you're you're more reflexic, more reflexic, more apt to do this. So the believer has the Holy Spirit, but you must yield to the Holy Spirit and say no to the flesh viper to accomplish this. You must master it, Cain. In verse 37. Jesus says, for by your words you will be justified, and your words you will be condemned. And looking at this from a salvation standpoint, look, at when you get saved, you have to somehow, some way, express yourself to God, either out loud, in your heart, some way, I believe in you, Jesus. I put my trust in you, Jesus. I commit myself to you, Jesus. That's what believing is. I believe you died on the cross in my place. You have to do that personally. Just saying, I believe Jesus died on the cross, isn't enough. You have to do it for you personally. I believe you died for me on the cross personally. So many people will say, I don't want this, or I'll take it later. I'll take it more when I'm ready. You've heard me many times with this. Remember this, God softens the heart. God prepares the soil. God creates the situation where the heart becomes able to receive the message. And then it's our job at that point to say, yes, to something that God is already doing in the person. John 1.12, yet all who receive him, you must receive him to those who believe in his name, present active participle, a continuous ongoing believing, demonstrating that you're genuine. That's what that means. To those who believe in him, he gave him the right to become children of God, born again of the Spirit. Those who reject Jesus by their words will be condemned, and they have rejected their only means of salvation. There's no means of salvation in any other world religion, any other paths, any other way. It is exclusively through Jesus Christ. We've been through this many times. So, careful little tongue what you say. Our words really do reflect our hearts. Examine your heart. It's not so pretty sometimes, is it? Hmm. Thirty-eight through forty. Evil hearts want Jesus to do more signs. They want Jesus to perform for him. Then some of the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, answer, saying, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Do a miracle for us, Jesus, on command." On command, Jesus, we want you to do something right now because we want you to do it. That's not how Jesus operates. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, this is kind of significant. What is a sign? Well, a sign is a miracle. Not a regular, a miracle. Something happens very infrequently. These rejectors want Jesus to perform for them, and notice this, Jesus has already given abounding evidence to who he is. He has done miracle after miracle, and by the way, he's just cast out a demon from a, from a person who was blind and mute. Folks, this is a messianic miracle. This is only Jesus could do this. This wasn't done in Israel. Only the Messiah would be able to do that. He's demonstrated this to him to them. Jesus pulls no punches in dealing with this kind of heart. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And then he goes into verse 40. The greatest sign is forthcoming. It will be the resurrection of our Lord. And I want you to focus on this. When Jesus died for your sins, that's the atonement, that satisfied the wrath of God on humanity. You have to receive the gift in order for God's wrath not to be imposed upon you. But the victory for your salvation is completed with the resurrection. Without the resurrection, your faith is in vain. Jesus is going to use code language here. For three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of the whale. So as Jonah was delivered from the death and the fish and given life, Jesus will be delivered from death and be raised to life from the earth. Now, there's a problem in our world our world has denied for 2,000 plus years that Jesus rose from the dead. They just can't believe it, okay? They can't believe it. They have a problem. They have a huge problem. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. All the things you concoct to try to suggest that they stole the body and Jesus swooned and he was almost dead but not really dead and then he ran away rolled the stone away by himself, and then ran away. I mean, give me a break. Give me a break. No one ever found the body of Jesus. And by the way, the Romans were experts at execution, experts at execution. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus down, and they knew he was dead. The women wrapped him in embalming stuff, at least 50 pounds of embalming stuff. They knew Jesus was dead. And oh, oh, another thing, two hours after a person dies, something happens to the body called rigor mortis. It takes about two hours, and everything contracts. Everything gets stiff, it's like stone. They knew Jesus was dead. They knew Jesus was dead. You cannot miss this sign. The resurrection is a fact our believing world must deal with. All world religions have to deal with this. Every person has to deal with this. Jesus conquered the grave. And you know why he did this? He did it for you. He did it for us, folks. John 14, 19, our, an amazing promise that Jesus gives his disciples, and by extension, us today. A little while longer, the world will see me no more. He's going to die. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. Let that resonate within you because you're going to go to a funeral soon, and you're going to need to know that that person's going to be alive again. My brother's going to be alive. Kids dying, they're going to be alive. They're going to be alive. There's hope. There's hope. Without the resurrection, folks, our faith is in vain. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he would indeed have been a liar, or a lunatic, but folks, he rose from the dead. He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, and you too will one day rise from the grave. You who are believers will rise to live with him forever. You who have said, no, I don't want you. Please, no thank you, Jesus. I'll just do my own thing. I think I'm good enough. I'll take my chance. I haven't heard... I don't know how many times you hear this. I'll take my chances. I'm a good person. Hogwash. Look at your mind. Look how you think from time. You are not a good person. You are not. And again, 41 through 42 is going to tell us it's all about a believing heart. That's what we want to have, a believing heart, a following Jesus heart. 41 through 42, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here, the Lord Jesus. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, greater than Solomon is here. It's all about a believing heart. Jonah and Solomon's lives were well known to the Jewish leaders. They knew all about these guys, these Old Testament characters. Jesus hits them right between the eyes. You are rejecting someone greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon. You have rejected the son of the living God, your only lifeline. Folks, it truly is all about a believing heart. And again, when I say believe, this isn't a casual, yeah, I believe Jesus died. It isn't. You know, there's many, many people that believe Jesus died on the cross. But folks, you have to internalize it. You have to personalize it for you. Huge difference between acknowledging that it happened in your brain and transferring that for, to your heart, that he did it for me, that he did it for me. Closing thoughts. Time for a heart check. How often have you heard the word heart? How often heart? It's spoken constantly. If we're sad, we have a broken heart. If we're insensitive, we're said to be heartless. If we're very emotional and and we we, we express our feelings rapidly, we wear our heart on our sleeve. The heart seems to be our emotional center. Many today, and and I want to say this again, because this is the mantra of the day, the chant that people say over and over, do what your." Follow your heart. Do what your emotions dictate, because it's all about you being happy, happy, happy. Do whatever you want. No restrictions. It's about your well-being. Our world screams, follow your heart. Princess Diana, who the world extols, said these words, only do what your heart tells you. What about if my heart tells me to sin? What about my heart tells me I want to take your car? What about if my heart tells me to do something against you? That's not so good. Caution. Your heart can mislead you. Your emotions can mislead you. Jeremiah 17.9 says it perfectly. You know what it is. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart. Out of it springs the issues of life. What is the seed of your emotions? It's your soul. It's your heart. What is your soul? Your soul is your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. All of us have a soul. All of us have a soul. When you were born again, you were given life. The Holy Spirit came into your spirit and gave you life. I'm going to have a picture up here. You've seen this before. We've been down this road before. Humanity is tripart: body, soul, and spirit. Your body is what you're housed in now. By the way, your body is what is deteriorating right before your eyes, okay? You can recognize it. If you're past two months old, you're deteriorating, okay? Your soul is your thoughts, feelings, emotions. It's your personality. It's your will. Your spirit is what needs to be born again. When the Holy Spirit, when you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God comes in. This lights up. You are born again of the Spirit This gives you connection with God, but your soul is not born again. Now hear this. Your soul is where strongholds have developed. You have spent a lifetime dealing with strongholds, and you get born again. You come into the family of God, and no strongholds are still there. Their strongholds are still there that 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 you're struggling to deal with. Some people have aggression. That's a stronghold. Some people have passive-aggressive. Those are the ones that drive you nuts. I mean, uh, passive-aggressive. Some people withdraw. Some people complain. Some people worry about everything. Strongholds, strongholds, strongholds. You just put the thing there, strongholds. Our soul is the area where spiritual warfare is fought, and strongholds either fall or strongholds keep hold of your life depending on how you are being transformed to the likeness of Christ. So you can live a soulish Christian life. You can live controlled by your soul, by your thoughts, feelings, emotions. You can live in stronghold land and be miserable, a miserable Christian, wondering why this Christianity doesn't work for me. Satan, by the way, the bullseye is your soul. Our soul is the area where spiritual warfare takes place, strongholds fall, and that is Satan's bullseye, your soul. The soul is the area that is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now, let me say this loud and clear there's a big thing in Christianity about lordship salvation. I believe that this is the area where lordship takes over. When you believed in Jesus, you were justified, declared righteous pure and holy in the sight of God. But you were a baby. You were not defeating strongholds. You were not defeating anything in the past. That happens in phase two of salvation, sanctification, where you're freed from the power of sin. That's you working in conjunction with the Spirit of God to get away, to break down, to tear down strongholds. That takes you working with God. The soul is an area being conformed to the likeness of Christ. The soul is the area that needs to be transformed where strongholds are torn down. That is where Lordship salvation takes place. A person can be saved again and live a soulish life. Those Those on the being conformed to the likeness of Christ path are always going to be transformed. If you really want to be more like Jesus, you will not stay the same. You will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It will happen. Those being transformed, strongholds are being overcome. Old patterns of thinking have changed. Now, take a stop. I had like jillions of strongholds in my life. And I was justified in a hotel room in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1968. I was 19 years old. And folks, I was born again in the Spirit. But strongholds had hold of me... For decades, 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 until finally I reached a point in my life where I cried out to Jesus, I need you more than I need these strongholds that had hold of me. And then my life changed as I said, I'm spending time with Jesus every single day. That was the end of addictions. That was when my path started to really change. Strongholds, being transformed strongholds are being overcome, old patterns of thinking change, no longer ruled by faultly fleshly feelings, or your urges, or your manipulations, or your rationalizations, that sort of thing. You will find yourself, look, when you're being transformed, you will find yourself living out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Now, you know, most people, say it's my favorite verse. That's my life verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know, that whole thing. So, hear this, trust in the Lord, strongholds come down, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. The soulish Christian can't do that. They're still trusting in themselves. And lean not onto your own understanding, your soulish feelings. Don't lean on that. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. All your heart, not your own understanding. Acknowledge him. And when he says direct your paths, that's all your ways in life. All your ways in life. That's where you want God involved in every area of your life. Our culture says, trust your heart. God says it's time for a heart check. Guard your heart. In your life, may God be above all powers, above all kings, above all strongholds and all created things, above all ways of thinking, every stronghold, everything. May he be above all And folks, do a heart check. Examine yourself. Do a heart check. Is this where we are with God in our life? Now, most of us, we're going to say no. No, there's always work to be done, okay? Let's be honest. But we want our God to be above all things. No stronghold holding on to me anymore. I want to be conformed and transformed. That's where the joy-filled life is. Michael W. Smith wrote a song. It's above all powers. Most of you know it. We'll play it in just a second above all kings above all nature and all created things above all wisdom and all the ways of man you were here before the world began above all kingdoms above all thrones above all wonders the world has ever known above all wealth and treasures of the earth and then i love this there's no way to measure what you're worth you are above everything oh god that is the transformed mind. That is not the soulish mind. Above all powers, above all kings, transformed, transformed. Psalm 1914 says this in a heart check. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We can be different. We don't have to be stuck in old you. Old you needs to be drop kicked. Now, there used to be something in football called drop kick, you know, boom, boom, boom. Okay, it actually worked. Drop kick that dude out. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time to study your word. Lord, I know that you speak to people's hearts. At different times, at different places in a talk, somebody zeroes in and somebody zeroes out. And Lord, I pray today that, You will have spoken to every person when they zeroed in that was something special for them at that moment. Nobody hears the word of God and isn't touched and changed because they've heard it. And now that we've heard it, may we not just be hearers of the word, but may we be doers of the word. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful people. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.